Well, let's get into, I've, I've started a new series. Just get right into it. I know no other way to start this out by just like, let's just get right into it. So, if you want to know what water is like, you don't ask a fish. Right? I mean, that's a Chinese proverb. A fish doesn't know anything else. If a fish could talk and you ask the fish about water, it might say, what in the world is water? And the fish has no context, no connection to anything different. The water is their environment, their culture, if you will. Someone who is intimately involved in their culture is probably not the best person to critique it. They are too involved, too intimate with their culture to give an honest answer. The New Testament calls us to be in the world, but not of it. As Christians, we live in this world, the world being the system of beliefs that govern our culture. We're absolutely immersed in it. By the way, there's no such system. I mean, no one such system. It varies from region to region but they do all have one common thread. They are diametrically opposed to God. Our culture is opposed to God, not for God. That is true everywhere. Okay, and we need to understand that. And that's why we're called to be not of it, because it's not from God. Now, God created everything perfect, but man messed it up. You know that. Now, so how do we put God first in our lives while living in a culture that denies God even exists. How do we do that? How do we put God first? I know, I mean, Jeremiah 29, 7, it says, but seek the wel welfare of the city where you live, where I sent you into exile, and pray for it that, to the Lord, right, on its behalf, for their welfare will be your welfare. That's Jeremiah 29. Right? Now, I, have, here's, I didn't have a text this morning. <laughs> and so I had to think of a text really quick. But my text might be Matthew 6.33, which says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added to you. Right? That, so that's, we'll say that's my text, but we're going to kind of bounce around. So the title of my new series here is When Christianity and Culture Clash. Because do you think Christianity and culture clash? We see it. We see it more and more. Culture it's, is against Christianity. There's no question about it. And I want to come right out and say that this isn't going to be an easy a message to preach or prepare for. And why would I say that? Well, because much of our culture, another word for our culture, perhaps, is the world, okay? And so much of our culture, or the world, has been accepted into or ignored completely by the church, right? And so, there's an unspoken fear that if we talk about it, there will be consequences for speaking the truth. 
But the solution isn't to ignore it. That's never helpful. We must speak the truth in love. And here's the thing, I also want your participation. I want to hear from you. What are some of the differences? What are some of the cultural differences where Christianity and culture clash in your world? Right where you are. What you're facing every day. What kinds of things are you facing that you would like me to address from the Word of God? I want to hear from you. And whether it's from a text or an email or a phone call or a personal visit over coffee, I want you to sit down with me or at least let me know the kinds of things that you're struggling with today, right now, because this needs to be heard and this needs to be a practical message. This needs to be hitting right where you are, right where you are, right where you're struggling with, the things that where you and culture, you, you're kind of going along, flowing with the stream, and you know that that culture is this way, but God's way is this way, and you're struggling with that. There's a clash. And you don't know what to do. I want to hear from you. And I want to address those things. I'm not going to say, hey, you know, Bob told me <laughs> that he's struggling with this, so we're going to talk about that today. No, it's not going to be like that. But I do, want, I do want participation because it needs to be practical. For this message, I want to lay the groundwork. And how do we even approach these questions? How do we judge our culture when we're part of that culture, when we're right in it, when we're immersed in it ourselves? We must have a frame of reference that originates from outside our culture. Amen? We must we, we can't, like, if we went by popular opinion, we would, we would just do surveys and whoever, you know, whoever said this the most, that's what we would do and that's what would be right. No, that doesn't work. Look at our political arena, for goodness sakes. Good grief, they do all kinds of surveys and just to stay in power. Not what's right or what's wrong, it's all about control and power. That's not the way to do it. So we're fooling ourselves if we don't think we need an outside source to help us understand what to do in Christianity and culture class. So here's my four uh, points today, my, my outline, if you will. It's uh, definition. I want to look at definitions. Um, our outside source and then Old Testament examples and then followed by New Testament confirmation. And so let's look at the definitions of my title. Okay, the title again is When Christianity and Culture Clash. I want to define these words. So first of all, what's Christianity? What's, you know, over 2 billion people on the planet claim to be Christian. But there certainly aren't over 2 billion Christians. I'll say that right now. Um, there aren't over 2 billion Christians on this planet. The planet we call Earth, many in our culture and in our churches have a wrong idea of what Christianity is and what it's all about. You can't inherit Christianity. Just because your parents or grandparents were Christian doesn't make you a Christian. That's uh, Now, um, you, you're not a Christian because someone sprinkled water on you when you were little. 
when you were a baby. And I'm speaking from experience because I was baptized when I was when a baby. I don't remember it at all. It wasn't my decision. So when I was 18 years old, I decided, you know what? I want to choose Jesus for myself, and I was baptized. So you can't be a Christian just because somebody sprinkled you when you were a baby. You're not a Christian because you attend church once in a while or even regularly. That doesn't make you a Christian. And you're definitely not a Christian because you wear a a cross or a T-shirt that has a cool saying about the Bible or anything like that. That doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, Merriam-Webster's definition of Christian, one who professes, now professes, I have a problem with this immediately, one who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. On the surface, that sounds like it might be okay, but it's profession. It's not living it out. There's a difference. Focus on the family's definition The term Christian, as we understand it, refers to anyone, man, woman, or child, who trusts in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior and Lord and who strives to follow him in every area of life. Understand, follow him. That is doing. It's more than words. It's more than profession. It's living it out. Interestingly, Christian literally means of the party of Christ. That's what it literally means. Of the party of Christ or follower of Christ. The word comes from Acts 11.26 which says, And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Notice the word disciple. The disciples. They were disciples first before They were called Christians. What is a disciple? And you'll find out what a Christian is. What is a disciple? An apprentice. A disciple is more than just a student. An apprentice. I like that. An apprentice. A disciple embraces a teacher's ways and makes the teacher's ways their own ways. That's what a disciple is. And in the, when Jesus had disciples, they mimicked him. Remember Jesus, the, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? This is Luke chapter 11. Jesus, can you teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples? They wanted to be like their master. John's disciples wanted to be like John. They wanted to, know how to, they, they wanted to pray like John prayed. Jesus' disciples, they didn't hard, Jesus went away to pray on his own a lot, so maybe they, but they wanted to learn how to pray as well. And so, in a very real way, a Christian is someone who, whose behavior and heart reflects Jesus Christ. Whose behavior and heart reflects Jesus. Now, what does culture mean? Every group defines their culture, whether they do that formerly. Formally, or it's unspoken, but it's understood. Most cities have identifiable areas of culture within that greater culture. Possibly the most recognizable culture within a culture is Chinatown. 
You go to uh, Chinatown. I remember going in Vancouver. I remember in Calgary. You go to uh, Chinatown, and it is, I mean, the colors and the food and the smells and the people. I mean, it, the culture is different there. But how do you put a label on culture? How do you really define it? Something that is so fluid, right? Here's some definitions. Ideally, the definition of culture is kind of a collective set of beliefs, values, and norms that define how we are and how we live and what's important to us. I suppose it's the spoken and the unspoken kind of tacit norms that bind us together as a society. That's Mary Hawkes Green, president of Byrne College of Art in Ireland. Here's another one. A culture is a way of life of a group of people, the behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that they accept generally without thinking about them and that are passed along by communication and imitation from one generation to the next. Now, culture isn't necessarily good or evil. On the other hand, experience reveals that culture, especially you know, the culture in which we live and accepted by the majority is often, as I said before, in opposition to God's ways. They don't even want to admit that God exists. And do you know why that is? This is my personal belief. They don't want to exist. They, they don't want to admit that God exists so that they don't have to be accountable to him. They don't want to be accountable to their creator. And so if we can eliminate God, then we can eliminate accountability. Now, probably the easiest way to look at culture for our purposes is to see that culture is something that God designed, but because of sin and, uh, and its influence, that culture is now managed by the God of this age who's not for us. He is not for us. He doesn't want us to succeed. He doesn't want us to be saved. He wants to ruin us, as a matter of fact. He's also known as Satan or the devil. Culture was God's idea, but our sin stained what God created to be something that was, um, that is, un I mean, God created it that was healthy and good, and we ruined it because of sin. Now, what is clash? So we've got Christianity, and we've got culture. Now what about clash? I love the dictionary definition of clash. Actually, there's two definitions, two parts to this. The first one is a violent confrontation. And the second is a, mis a mismatch of colors. Like when, you, when you're wearing something, like when I graduated from high school in 1976, I'll just say that I clashed really bad. I bought, it was the first time I bought my own suit and my own shirt, my own tie, because I was graduating, and I just clashed. It was bad, bad. That, so which one fits a violent confrontation? Well, that's coming. You know, that, that fits. A violent confrontation often the world and Christianity, our culture and Christianity often clash and sometimes it's quite violent. But I think the mismatch of colors fits really well too. Um, I, 
I mean, perhaps you're getting... Well, the news is full of examples of this kind of clash, the mismatch, um, or, or the clashing. I'll give you just one example, is um, the, the Tennessee shooting. Okay, there were six people killed. Uh, almost 200 bullets were fired, right? And uh, three children, nine years old, and three teachers, all in their 60s, early 60s, were shot by a 28-year-old transgender individual who had targeted purposely a Christian school. That's a, that's a clash between culture and Christianity. Christianity was targeted. Much of the me mainstream media now, this, this is what's really sad about this. And, and for those of us who follow Christ, it hurts. Much of the mainstream media focused on the idea that, the true tr that, that it was the transgender people that were the true victims here and not those that were killed and not the families that were missing their moms and their kids. That's violent confrontation. That's a clash <clears throat> between culture values and Christianity. No real Christian hates a transgender individual. Do you agree with that? No real Christian hates a transgender person. That's true. For a genuine believer, there's only love. End of story. Only love. Now, you don't have to agree with somebody's lifestyle or choices but you need to love them. It's God is love. And if we're going to imitate the God of love, we need to love. And we need to do it well. Why, are there always, why will there always be a clash between Christianity and culture? Because the Bible tells us, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone... Um, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, right? And so there will always be a clash because we can't, as, as believers, as Christians, we can't go along with our culture all the time, a lot of the time. And so we will be picked on. Now, what about our outside source? In 2007, Pew Research asked the question, do you have to believe in God to be moral? depending on what your definition of morality is, I guess. But in the United States, no was 41% of the answer. No, you don't have to be a Christian to be moral. You, like, I mean, you, there are good people that aren't believers, right? They're, it's kind of a tricky question, in my view. Um, yes said 57%. In Canada, 67% said no. You don't have to be a Christian. In Israel, 55%. In Sweden, 86%. In Indonesia, now get this. This is interesting. In Indonesia, only 1% said that you don't have to be a Christian to be moral. In other words, 98%, well, 98%, I guess there was 1% undecided, but 98% said you needed to be a Christian to be moral. In China, this is interesting, 
17% said you needed to believe in God to be moral. So there will always be a wide gap between what is morally right and what is morally wrong in culture if you don't have an outside source to guide you. It's simply because one opinion, I mean, it's one opinion against the other opinion, right? If you don't have a guide. It's again, the majority rules. Whatever the most people think is right, that's what's right. But that can't be. Or maybe it's the person with the best influence. There will always be conflict. Now, this is it's really interesting. I've got two quotes here. One from Laura Schlesinger. It is simply impossible for people, people to be moral without religion or God. That's her opinion. Richard Dawkins. Faith can be very, very dangerous. And to deliberately implant it into the vulnerable mind of an innocent child is a grievous wrong. Into our lostness and into our confusion and into our struggle enters our Creator God. Paul describes our Creator God in Athens Chapter 17, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you in him, we live and move and have our being. We have a creator God. And so we are accountable to our creator God. That's what Paul was saying. A.W. Tozer once said, the Bible is not merely a human book inspired by God. It is a divine book that has been given to us by God. It's not, a, it's not, not just inspired by God. It was given by God. And there's a big difference in that. The Bible is the inspired word of God. That means that it is absolutely relevant and reliable today. Relevant and reliable. How many in our culture, even in our churches, saying the Bible needs to be updated? There's a lot of that. The Bible is our outside source. The Bible was not written by a group of men who got together and decided what should be included. No, the Holy Spirit called approximately three dozen men to write God's Word over a period of 1,600 years, and yet it fits so well together. It's God's story. 1,600 years, this is why we can trust the Bible to teach us the truth about God and His plan for our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible's reliable. It is our outside source. Now, what about Old Testament examples? Leviticus chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, you shall not do what they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor should you do what they do in the land of Canaan where I bring you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You will perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in according with them, 
I proclaim myself as the Lord your God. What's God telling the children of Israel? Don't accept the culture you came from. Okay, don't buy that stuff. And don't buy the stuff from the culture in which you're going. The past and the future. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying. Maybe you've experienced this yourself. You've immigrated to Canada and the culture you came from is familiar to you, but it's not how God wants you to live. The culture you come into is unfamiliar, but you see enough to know that it's not that godly and it's certainly not how God wants you to live. God wants, God's ways are different than the ways of culture. God's ways are different. Now, did the children of Israel listen to what God told them? Did they listen? Did they remain a separated people, a holy people, which means separated um, separated to God? Uh, no, they didn't. The Old Testament is full of their failures and God's grace. And so what happens when God's ways and the ways of the ungodly culture clash? What happens? And what happens when you, when you kind of receive the culture and not God's ways. What happens? Well, if you remember, we looked at what happened when um, the church of Pergamos, you remember the doctrine of Balaam. Do you remember that? The book of Numbers starts out with the children of Israel being sent out to spy out the land. They could see the land. They were, they, the, the Canaan was just over there. And 12 spies, one from each tribe, one from each son, went to spy out the land. And they came back. And 10 of them were discouraged and afraid and said, we can't do it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, let's go and do it because God has given us the victory. And the 10 outnumbered the two. And so they complained to Moses. And there was a riot. And, and, well, they didn't choose well. They chose poorly. And now, here they are again. They're ready to try again. They're ready to go into the land. They're ready. They're camped in the, in the plains of Moab at the end of the book of Numbers. They're, they're camped at the plains of Moab, and they were afraid, and they, they had um, that Moab was afraid. They had heard of Israel's victories as they were coming closer to the promised land. And so the king of Moab, Balak, hired Balaam to curse Israel from the high places of Baal, but God made Balaam bless Israel instead. Now this is where it gets interesting. Balak, the king of Moab, is angry because he feels that Balaam has betrayed him. I told you to curse those people. Why did you bless them? Of course, Balaam said, I have to say what God tells me. I had no choice. It's not my fault. Well, and this gets really interesting now. Balaam tries to explain that he doesn't have a choice, but he says, there is another way. I can kind of help you out here. It's as if you, it, why don't, you know, here's another way. I want to read Numbers 25, 1 to 3 with what happened. Now Israel remained 
there, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. See what happened here? They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So what happened? They hadn't even got to the promised land, and already they were, they were messing around with a culture that they had no business being a part of and doing the things and accepting the things of that culture which God said that they should have nothing to do with. They were in trouble. As a result, God sent a plague and 24,000 of them died. Please note that God said that the children of Israel should not adopt anything from the Egyptian culture which was behind them or they shouldn't adopt anything from the Canaanite culture which was in front of them. They haven't even got there. And they were adopting an ungodly culture. I mean, do you just picture God? Many kings married foreign women after, you know, and you remember they asked for a king? We want a king like all the other nations. They were looking at all the cultures around them that had kings. We want one of those. Okay, again, adopting a culture, something from a culture that was around, right? God had given them judges, but that wasn't good enough. No, we want kings. And so the kings, as a result, started marrying foreign women who worshiped foreign gods. But one of the most damaging and surprising, do you know which one was the most damaging and the most surprising to you? Solomon. Solomon... Okay, the wisest man in the world? I don't think so. I, really? Why? I, I'm going to read 1 Kings 11, 1 to 13. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. He loved Hittite women and the women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Sidon. They came from the nations about which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, never intermarry with them. They will surely tempt you to follow their gods. But Solomon was obsessed with their love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 wives who were concubines. In his old age, his wives tempted him to follow other gods. He was no longer committed to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtat, the goddess of the Sidonians, uh, Milcom, the disgusting idol of the Amorites, so Solomon did what the Lord considered evil. He did not wholeheartedly follow the Lord as his father David had done. Then Solomon built an illegal worship site on the hill east of Jerusalem for uh, Shemosh, the uh, disgusting idol of Moab, and for Moloch, the disgusting idol of the Amorites. He did these things for each of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Can you believe that this was the wisest man in the world? So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Okay. God appeared to him twice about this. I guess this was strike three. 
God had given him commands about this. He told him not to follow other gods, but Solomon did not obey God's command. The Lord told Solomon, because this is your attitude and you have no respect for my promises or my laws that I commanded you to keep, I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you. I will give it to one of your servants, but I will not do it in your lifetime because of your father David. I will tear it away from the hands of your son. However, I will not tear the whole kingdom away from you. I will give your son one tribe for my servant David's sake and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I chose. The consequences of allowing or of, of thinking that you can make peace with the culture around you rather than to oppose it, the consequences are severe. Uh, the Bible never speaks favorably about that which is wholly adopting the culture or the practices of that which uh, is ungodly. Never, never, never. It's, the, the ungodly never influence the godly in a positive way. It's always the other way around. Try it. Take a white towel and wipe your dirty shoe and see if there's no dirt on the towel. The unholy always taint what is holy. Always in Scripture. Just remember that. If you're wanting to accept the culture around you for what it is, for those practices that aren't right, you will be tainted. The dirt will be on you. It's never the other way around. Well, what about the New Testament? There's so many verses that warn God's people of the dangers of getting too comfortable with our culture. I'll just read a few of them. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? That's 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul goes on to quote an Old Testament passage after that, a couple of verses. He says, come out from among them and be separate. Right? And so that's, that's often uh, used in marriage, but it's talking about business and marriage. and I mean, it, that's Christianity and culture clashing right there. With, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as in an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. There's a culture class. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Phillips translation. Here's one from the message. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his ways. James 4, 4. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Colossians 3.2 And the world is passing away along with its 
desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's 1 John 2.17. The grace of God has has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, or should I say, in the present culture. And that's Titus 2, 11 and 12. So how do we pick our way through this? Again, I'm saying this is, our, this is kind of a foundational message that, that I'll bounce all the other ones off of. Okay, according to Dr. Um, Bruce Riley Ashford, we have three choices as to how we deal with culture. And so first of all, Christianity against culture. In this view, the concern, um, I mean, it's, um, the concern is that our, um, our Christianity is more and more post-Christian, our culture is more and more post-Christian. In other words, we had our day, and now it's after that. Christianity is declining. And so we live in a post-Christian world, as far as our culture is concerned. And so it's Christianity against culture. Uh, you see many practices in our culture so wrong, and, and, and so the natural thing to do is to separate ourselves completely from that culture wherever possible. The Amish are an example. Do, do I look like I'm Amish this morning? Maybe, kind of, yeah, maybe. And so, um, but the Amish is an example. They, they, they're separating out of culture. It's, it's, they're so against culture and what's happening that they separate themselves completely from it. The other side of the same coin is that you become a very legalistic and negatively focused, pointing out everything that's wrong, uh, forcing your legalistic views on everyone and everything around you. You become known for what you're against rather than for what you're for. And that's no good either. That's, that's, you become known... Uh, I guess I mean you're protesting at pride events and abortion clinics and all the other things. These people see themselves as God's ultimate warriors. And uh, but the bubble of legalism can't keep sin out of the church. And it hides one of God's most useful tools to reach a lost world, you and me. Right? You can't. I mean we live in this culture. We have to find a way to do it in a godly way. Okay, the second thing is Christianity of culture. Now, a church or an individual who embraces this perspective tends to embrace a lot of gray areas. Okay, and that's the, that's the weakness of this. There's always a danger um, that at the heart of this view, believers uh, uh, believes that the gospel has to be made more attractive to fit the times. When Christianity embraces the gray areas, the better way of life we offer can become gray itself and obscured. Uh, Ashford puts it this way, when Christians adopt a Christianity of culture mindset, 
they take away Christianity's ability to be a, a prophetic voice and usually end up sacrificing doctrines and moral beliefs that run contrary to the culture, cultural consensus. Of course, intentions are good, and there can be positive fruit, but it may not ultimately be best for the church in the long run. I could think of two extremes of this. Uh, uh, maybe a good extreme, a couple of good extremes are like a, a beach church. Or maybe in Hawaii, Lord, send me there. <laughs> I want to pastor that church. I'll learn to surf, really. Uh, no, so, that, so that's a church. That's a Christian culture. Or in Ottawa, there was the Bikers Church, right? Those are churches that have adopted the biker culture or the beach culture. And, you know, is there anything wrong with that? I don't think so. How about the Cowboy Church? A cowboy church is kind of like that. They've adopted the cowboy lifestyle and culture to reach cowboys. I think those are good things. On the negative side of that would be a church that loses all their... The, the, the authority of Scripture is gone. The update, like the Rainbow Church, for example. Not cool. That doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for God. Because God's word clearly teaches that some things are wrong. Right? Christianity in and for culture, this is the third thing. Every cultural context is structurally good, but directionally corrupt, says Ashford. Jesus prayed in John 17, 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world or out of the culture, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus asked us to be salt and light. But absolutely apart in priorities and convictions. We must live our lives within but absolutely be a part when it comes to God's ways versus the cultural ways. So in this series, armed with God's word, and in the strength and leading of the Holy Spirit, we want to judge each thing and how we should respond to our challenging, to these, our challenging cultural situations. Uh, our cultural clashes. And so we have three choices usually. Do we, um, do, do we, are we against it and stand against it? Sometimes we have to be. There's no question. There's sometimes, if, if there are things that take us away from God in our culture, then we have to, we have to, we have to know that and we have to oppose that. We don't have to go marching with signs or anything like that. It's just we have to keep ourselves clean and pure, right? And so there are times when it's going to be Christianity against culture, and there are times when it's going to be Christianity of culture where we can join in. Like, there are things that we can join in. Like, I can go golfing with the men's league and be a positive influence, right? 
Could I start a golf church? Well, maybe not. I'm not that good. And then, but most of all, I think that we are Christianity in and for culture. It's like I read from the very be- at the beginning, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. God has put us here, right? God sent us here, okay? And so, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I think that needs to be our emphasis, don't you? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. This is a big, big, this is a big bite we're, we're biting off and we're going to chew on. And Father, we want you to be honored and glorified in all of this. And we need help uh, picking out those areas of culture where we need to stay away from, those areas that we need to oppose ourselves, those areas that we can join in, but cautiously. We need help. We need your Holy Spirit's leading and guiding. Uh, it's no good for us to stay apart because we can't be salt and light that way. But there are times when we can't just wholeheartedly join into our culture either. And so, Father, teach us the difference. Be honored and glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen.